Hello, I'm Jonathan Harris, Research Fellow at the Centre for Research in Educational Underachievement in Stranmillis University College, Belfast. Welcome to the Crew Podcast, a space to unpack the complex issues in research related to educational underachievement. An issue dominating conversations about education in Northern Ireland over the past few months has been the transfer tests and access to grammar school places. As the transfer tests were first postponed and then cancelled due to the pandemic, we have been left discussing what the consequences are for social and educational inequality, as well as the merits and pitfalls of the different contingencies and the future shape of the tests themselves. It has caused great controversy, partly because individual convictions about academic selection are deeply rooted and partly because reliable data about the transfer process is so difficult to come by. So, what is the evidence? To find out, for this episode, Crew Director Dr Noel Purdy spoke to Dr Sam Sims from the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at the UCL Institute of Education in London, who published a research paper in 2019 entitled Why do so few low- and middle-income children attend a grammar school? Sam, uh, it's good to have you with us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at the IOE? Hi, Noel. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so I'm a lecturer uh, at CPO, the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, and I'm interested in um, teachers and teaching and education policy more broadly, and that's kind of the remit of our centre, um, particularly looking at, you know, how education policy affects um, equity in educational outcomes and on into the labour market earnings and, and so on. Um, I finished my PhD about three or four years ago now uh, and since then I've worked on a number of um, projects, uh, one of which we're going to talk about today which is joint work uh, led by Professor John Jerome at UCL and funded by the Nuffield Foundation which looks at um, grammar school entry and sort of some of the determinants or influences on who gets into grammar schools and who doesn't. Okay, thanks Sam. Um, so today we are going to uh, focus on, on some of that work that you've done with John Durham. Uh, it was published in, in 2019 in the British Educational Research Journal and as you say it did look at, at access to grammar schools both in England and of course here in Northern Ireland where we've got a very strong grammar school sector. Um, first of all, I wonder, could you tell us a little bit more about the aims of the study and, and what the key research questions were? Sure. Yeah, so this all started back in, in 2016, which <laughs> feels like quite a long time ago now when, you know, remember back when Theresa May was Prime Minister. And, um, you know, she inherited a strong parliamentary majority from David Cameron when she took over as Prime Minister. And she made a speech, which I think um, was is, is quite famous or quite well remembered, where she stood on the steps of, of Downing Street and addressed directly, you know, the a group that she referred to as the just about managing. And so she, these are characterised in various ways, but, you know, people who are not poor uh, per se, but who have to worry about the cost of living and kind of, you know, spend their money judiciously. And one of the concerns that she attributed to this group was that, uh, you know, they were worried about whether they would get their kids into a good school, perhaps because 
Um, you know, in England, we have a, a school admissions based on proximity a lot of the time. So, you know, do you live close to the school? And so maybe if you're a, if you're in an income constrained group, you can't afford to just you know move house next to the school you want to go to. And in that same speech, she sort of promised, you know, she said, we will do everything we can to help anybody, whatever their background, go as far as your talents will take you. And a big part of the or prominent part of that uh, domestic policy agenda, you know, besides Brexit, uh, was to introduce more grammar schools in England. And now, uh, as you just said, no, you know, Northern Ireland has uh, an entirely um, sort of grammar and non-grammar system. Uh, whereas in England, you know, post uh, the Second World War, we had the introduction of this tripartite system, three-part system with grammar schools that select based on test scores, uh, secondary moderns, which kind of taught roughly the same stuff, schools as we recognise them today, really, uh, but were not selective, and then vocational schools. And then about 20 years later, the government issued a directive uh, to the local authorities, which were responsible for education, asking them to move towards a comprehensive system. So all schools admitting all pupils in the local area rather than admission based on test scores. And over the next kind of 10 years, that slowly happened. Um, uh, however, about 10 local areas in England just refused to do it, essentially held out. And so there's about 160 grammar schools left in these 10 areas, including Theresa May's own constituency, actually her parliamentary constituency of Maidenhead. Uh, and, and the situation just kind of stopped, you know, it, 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 an uneasy truce persisted um, from 1976 until 2016, 40 years later, um, uh, when Theresa May promised to kind of expand grammar schools again. And we wanted to with this research really test Theresa May's claim implicit in that speech, but uh, made more explicitly elsewhere, that grammar schools would help people go as far as their talents would take them regardless, regardless of background. And, and so something that, something that has to be true for that to be the case is that, uh, you know, talented pupils, regardless of background, can get into grammar schools in the first place, otherwise they can't benefit from the grammar school, you know, existing in their, in their local area. And it's well known that, as well documented, that um, uh, about 3% of pupils attending grammar schools in England are eligible for free school meals, so from low-income families, uh, despite uh, uh, pupils on free school meals accounting for about 13% of the population as a whole. And actually in selective areas, these 10 local areas, uh, that disparity is actually larger in some of those areas. Um, now, now, that fact might be sort of consistent with Theresa May's claim um, if uh, richer pupils just also happen to have more kind of inherent underlying talent in Theresa May's, uh, you know, phrase. Um, so that, that's the thing we're really trying to test with this research. Um, but there might also be other, you know, more insidious reasons for this discrepancy we see in the data. For example, uh, disadvantaged kids attend less good primary schools before going on to selective secondary schools. So they've kind of been disadvantaged, uh, you know, through in a relative sense through which primary school they attend. Or rich kids might be getting private tutoring to help them prepare for the, uh, for the entrance test known as the 11 plus in England or the transfer test in Northern Ireland. Uh, and these kind of things would be inconsistent with Theresa May's 
claims about uh, you know grammar schools helping people go as far as their their talents can take them okay that's really helpful sam um thanks for that um what about the the data then that you used to to help you to um to inform your analysis what what data set did you draw upon yes it's quite demanding in terms of the data we needed to address this question uh, we need really rich data we need to know things like uh, family income, which is non-trivial to actually, uh, you know, observe and, you know, get, get good measurements of in data sets. Uh, whether pupils live in a selective area in England, although our job was simplified in Northern Ireland because essentially all of the areas are selective. Uh, we need to know who goes on to a grammar school and who doesn't, so we can actually look at you know, attendance. Um, we need early measures of kind of academic achievement or academic potential, if you like, because, uh, you know, we, we want to look at people's underlying academic ability, whatever that means, what Theresa May would refer to as talents. And ideally, we also want information on private tutoring, uh, which is particularly tricky because this often happens in the kind of grey markets, the cash economy, uh, a lot of the time. And, and so we don't, uh, it's often hard to get good information on that. Uh, the data set we ended up using, which allows us to actually get all of that information, is the Millennium Cohort Study. And so at the time, 2016, um, we just had the age 14 sweep of this data set. So the Millennium Cohort Study is a cohort study, follows just, uh, uh, just, just less than 20,000 pupils who were born in the year 2000 through their lives. So by 2016, the kids were about 16 years old. And we had the data up to age 14, which, of course, crucially, they're, they're in secondary school at that point. Uh, and, and the Millennium Cohort Study collects data on this cohort of pupils roughly once every three years. And so this enabled us to get all of the all of the information we really needed for this study, including in particular sort of cognitive tests administered at a very early age. So age three, age five and age seven, um, which is crucial for, yeah, for answering this question. Okay, um, thanks, Sam. Um, if we focus on Northern Ireland uh, for a moment, compared to England, because clearly there are there are differences um, between the two jurisdictions. There, um, can you tell us a bit about the relationship between family income and grammar school attendance um, in, in Northern Ireland, and perhaps suggest how and, and why this relationship uh, differs between the situation in England? Yeah, yeah, and I'd be, I'd be interested to get your your thoughts on this as well, Noel. A simple way of thinking about this is to compare the probability of attending a grammar school for a child from the bottom quarter of households by income, so the poorest quarter of households, uh, relative to the probability of attending a grammar school uh, for kids in the richest quarter of households. And so in Northern Ireland, rich kids are 53 percentage points more likely to attend a grammar than poor kids. That's a huge gap. Uh, you know, mo most rich quarter versus least rich quarter. Uh, and in England, uh, the rich kids are 36 percentage points more likely to attend a grammar school than poor kids. So we, we do see quite a, uh, you know, notably more stronger relationship between income and grammar attendance in Northern Ireland than England. I mean, uh, yeah, I I'd be interested in your views on this, Noel. I mean, we can, we don't know exactly why that is, but we can speculate, you know, have some informed speculation, if you like. So one important thing to point out here is that England has a quite a relatively large private school sector. So about 7% of secondary school pupils are attending 
fee-paying schools. Uh, and I think that's a lot higher than, than the situation in Northern Ireland. So, so when we're, uh, you know, these affluent private school pupils are not really included in the grammar versus comp comparison, uh, comprehensive school comparison in England, uh, but their equivalents sort of are in Northern Ireland or are to a much greater extent. There's also just differences in the nature of the splits between grammar and non-grammar schools across the two countries. So in Northern Ireland, as I understand it, about a third of, uh, prime, uh, a third of pupils attend grammar schools, about 35%. Uh, I think it may even be higher than that, Sam, but yes. That, oh, right. Well, yeah. I think it's uh, whereas in England, the figures, yeah, the figures about 25% yeah. of pupils in those selective areas. Um, so, so, so the way I've broken it down is that, you know, the, the quarter of richest kids versus the quarter of poorest kids, you know, that might interact with just the underlying share of pupils attending uh, the two different types of schools in the country. Yeah, I think um, you're right, certainly about the, um, the lack of a private um, school sector in, in Northern Ireland that really doesn't exist. Um, so I think right. you're absolutely right. I mean, we are speculating a little bit here as well, aren't we? But, but I think it's fair to say that compared to England, uh, there really isn't. Um, a, a, a private or public school sector um, in Northern Ireland. There might be one or two uh, independent um, fee-paying schools in Northern Ireland, uh, which are very small, uh, and the rest are, are government-funded. Um, a lot of the voluntary grammars have a voluntary contribution, uh, but it's, uh, it's generally um, uh, much, much lower than a, a, a private fee-paying school would charge in England. So yes, that is a considerable right. difference, I think. Uh, another difference, just to go back to what you were saying earlier, is that in terms of the percentage of uh, uh, pupils at grammar schools in receipt of free school meals, you mentioned that in England it's it's three percent. In Northern Ireland, it's actually higher than that; it's fourteen percent at the moment, and that figure has doubled um, within the last decade or so. Um, uh, so the number, uh, the percentage of of children at grammar schools in receipt of free school meals is higher than in England but it's still much lower than the percentage of pupils uh, in receipt of free school meals in the non-selective sector in Northern Ireland, which sits at around 39%. So there's still right. quite a difference between the 14% in grammar schools and the 39% in, in non-grammar schools. Yeah, yeah, it's plausible to me that this is also, uh, you know, the, the way in which income interacts with educational disadvantage is not a sort of straight line relationship, right? So. Uh, the weekly household income in Northern Ireland is uh, quite a bit lower on average than it, than it is in England. So maybe if you, you know, if you're living in absolute poverty, uh, you know, that might hamper your chances of uh, attending a selective school more than just having an income that's, you know, slightly lower than, than one of your peers. So yeah, these, these are all, I think this all makes a lot of sense to me in explaining this, but um, yeah, it'd be good to, good to see more sort of empirical research in, in this area. Yeah, and, and, and this leads us on really into the next question, because clearly it's not just about uh, family income. That may be a factor, and, and we've discussed that a little bit, but there could be a range of other factors uh, that play a determining uh, role in, in grammar school attendance. Um, what can you tell us about those other factors? What are they and, and what's their relative strength? What did you find from the, the data? Yeah, so really the main thing we do in this paper is see... Uh, strip out the effects of a bunch of other um, uh, variables, other characteristics about the pupil and their family, 
and see how much we can shrink uh, that gap between uh, you know, the richest quarter of kids and the poorest quarter of kids in terms of grammar attendance. And when I say strip it out, I mean, we're gonna say, okay, let's compare, rather than just comparing the richest quarter and the poorest quarter of kids, uh, let's compare, let's find uh, some kids with the same prior attainment. So they, you know, they got the same scores in these tests at three, five, and seven, and then look within that group, within that strata of prior attainment, uh, you know, what is the difference in grammar school attendance then? And so in England, we find that, uh, you know, once we strip out prior attainment, that accounts for about half the gap in grammar attendance between rich kids and poor kids. And then once we account for private tutoring as well, so we compare kids with the same level of prior attainment and the same amount of private tutoring, uh, that can account for about half of the remaining gap, again, on top of prior attainment. So essentially, private tutoring can account for, well, really quite a large proportion of, of this gap. In Northern Ireland, the results are similar, although there are some nuances. So again, we find that private attainment accounts for about half the gap, same as England. Unlike England, the sort of specific local area that a child grows up in within Northern Ireland also accounts for some of that, uh, that grammar attendance gap. Uh, I'd be interested in your views on why this might be, Noel. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting paper by Leanne Henderson in Burge, which shows that you know, grammar and non-grammar aren't the only types of schools in Northern Ireland, of course. There is a religious denomination and so on. And so living in certain areas might constrain your options really for feasible, you know, your choice set of schools that you could feasibly attend. So perhaps there's something, something like that going on. Uh, and then the final thing in Northern Ireland is we find that you know, private tutoring can again account for some of the gap even after you've accounted for prior achievements, uh, but it's not anywhere near as large, um, larger contribution as private tutoring is within England. Yeah, and let's let's maybe focus in a little bit more on the private tuition because um, there has been quite a lot of talk um, in Northern Ireland, but probably very little research uh, in this area. And often um, we know that private tutoring goes on. Um, it's it's often um, cash in hand to to um, tutors or teachers or students who are doing this. So it's actually very hard. To, to know exactly the extent of private tutoring that's going on. But, but anecdotally, we, we, we know that um, there, there's, quite a, there's quite an industry around this. Um, how important a factor do you think then is private tuition in determining grammar school attendance? You said it's a little bit less uh, than might be the case in England. Uh, and how is access to that tuition related to family income? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, I mean, the results I discussed before are really just associations. We're just, um, yeah, we're, we're accounting statistically for, uh, you know, the, uh, the association between, for example, private tutoring and whether or not you attend uh, a grammar school. Uh, so it's, we're not saying this is a sort of causal effect, but there are a few other observations from the research um, which do point in that direction, are suggestive of that. So... For example, we find that um, three quarters of children living in a selective area who were coached uh, do pass uh, the grammar entrance test or gain entry to grammar school. 
compared to only 14% of those who were not coached. Again, this is just one more suggestive bit of evidence in the pile. We also find that families in selective areas spend more money on tutoring than those in non-selective areas. You know, as income grows, they tend to invest more of that money in private tutoring than somebody kind of just across the boundary in an area with no grammar schools. We also find that uh, the subjects in which parents are investing uh, this money in private tutoring it's only really in English and maths, which are aligned with the sorts of things that tend to be tested in 11 plus tests in England. So, you know, what's sometimes called verbal and nonverbal reasoning. Uh, but they're not spending more money in science, notably, which is not included in the 11 plus test. So this again, this is just one more bit of suggestive evidence. So, yeah, I mean, what we're saying with this paper really is that there, you know, there's, there's clear evidence of strategic use of tutoring, you know, in grammar areas, not in non-grammar areas, and in 11 plus subjects, not in non-11 plus subjects. Uh, and on top of that, we observe that pupils from the same areas with the same levels of prior achievement are much more likely to attend grammar schools if they have access to that private tutoring. So, uh, so Sam, what do we do about this? Really, if if we're suggesting that there, uh, this might be um, related to family income, um, that the pupils who are in receipt of tuition uh, in Northern Ireland, even if slightly less so than in England, do benefit from this and are more likely to attain grammar schools, um, is there a way forward in in reducing potential inequity ar around this area? I think it's very very difficult and. Uh, you know, there have been recurring debates um, in England, I mean, almost since the establishment of the tripartite system in grammar schools, around how we should design these entrance tests at age 11. And, um, you know, for decades, people have argued that we should remove tests of knowledge uh, from the 11 plus on the grounds that, or in an attempt to kind of class proof these tests, because you know, if you're from a middle class family with educated parents, you do just tend to pick up a lot of knowledge from, you know, just by sort of osmosis, sat at the dinner table discussing things. You know, you've got the radio on in the morning, listening to news pro, all of these things that we know about um, educational disadvantage. And so this has led people to kind of, uh, you know, reduce the amount of knowledge in tests and focus more and more on sort of pure intelligence testing. So, you know, the 11 plus does not contain a geography module. It has nonverbal reasoning module, right? Um, but I think this, isn't, this can't really provide a satisfactory answer to how should we select to age 11. And that is because, you know, if you talk to advocates for grammar schools, certainly in England, they'll say, oh, the, the, the goal of the 11 plus is to select pupils um, who have high academic potential and could therefore benefit from the sort of academic education you get in a grammar school. Um, the trouble is that academics isn't just about intelligence. It is partly about intelligence, of course. Um, but there's a paper written by Sophie von Stun, a psychologist from York University, that decomposes the kind of you know, what are the traits of a person with high academic potential, people who go on to get high grades? And it summarizes 11 other papers quantitatively. And the, you know, the final answer is that academic potential is sort of two parts intelligence, 
to one part curiosity or hunger for knowledge, to one part kind of studious conscientiousness, you know, I do all my homework on time, I, I, I put a lot of effort into things. So in essence, intelligence is about half the story of academic potential. So when we focus entrance tests purely on intelligence, okay, perhaps we're class proofing it more than we would be if we were, you know, had a geography module in there or a current affairs module or a history module. But actually it means the tests are missing the point in terms of academic potential. In essence, we can either have a test which is more socially fair because it focuses on intelligence, or we can have a test that's a better test of academic potential that also includes, you know, um, you know test people on subjects that would reflect their studiousness and their curiosity and so on. But we cannot have a test, an 11 plus test that is both accurate and fair at the same time. So it's not clear to me that this provides you know, a satisfactory way out of the problems we've got with uh, testing for entrance to grammar schools at age 11. So where does that leave the discussion that we're having currently in Northern Ireland about potential replacements uh, for next year for the current P6 cohort going into P7 next year and the discussion in the media this week uh, and the discussion paper circulated by one of the testing uh, bodies here that we move uh, away from the current model uh, and back to uh, a, a sort of verbal reasoning uh, test, which they're potentially um, arguing is, is, is fairer, um, given that children have been out of school uh, essentially for half of the last um, 12 months. Yeah, well, I mean, it will be slightly fairer in the sense that, uh, you know, it won't disadvantage um, pupils who have missed out on greater levels of content because of lockdowns or, or whatever, but it will also just be doing a much worse job at selecting the pupils who would benefit, uh, you know, in theory from a kind of academic grammar school education. Essentially, it will be fairer but less accurate. And this, there's no way out of this kind of, uh, you know, dilemma between, you know, being accurate and being fair. So I mean, essentially, it leaves the debate in a very awkward place where, you uh, advocates of academic selection at age 11 just have to choose do they want to do a bad job in one way or do they want to do a bad job in a different way. And, and can you still tutor for a verbal reasoning test? Is that still going to be a factor, do you think, um, moving forward, just tutoring for a different test? Yeah, well, it's not entirely clear to me. I mean, people have tried to test this uh, empirically. Um, I suspect that just familiarizing somebody with a test can help in terms of their kind of confidence and sort of sense of self-efficacy for approaching the test. But I would like to see more experimental research. This is a very testable thing, right? We can just, um, you know, we can randomly assign some kids to get some preparation for one of these pure uh, inverted commas intelligence tests and some others not to and, and see how they see how they differ. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's not entirely clear to me whether uh, you know whether that's a good use of money for parents or not to put it in that way. Okay, um, just a a couple more questions quickly before before we have to finish. Um, England's um, eleven plus tests did actually go ahead at the end of twenty twenty. Just squeezed them in, I think, before the the, the latest lockdown. Whilst of course our uh, transfer tests were postponed and then cancelled completely as a result of COVID. Um, what do you think the implications of this difference might be for social inequality in this cohort in England and in Northern Ireland? Yeah, um, <laughs> well, so as I understand it, the situation in Northern Ireland is that grammar schools now just have to kind of make their own arrangements for admissions 
Um, yes, they've drawn yeah, up their uh, own uh, criteria, uh, non-academic criteria. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so it's very hard to yeah answer that question ahead of time because who knows what different schools are doing? Presumably, different schools are doing different things. Um, and so, so this is much more like the situation we had, you know, prior to the Second World War in England, where uh, grammar schools, um, this was in a period where not everybody actually got to go to secondary school because we had, we didn't have the universal secondary education. Grammar schools just decided their own entrance tests and actually, you know, they weren't necessarily standardized across pupils within a school either. Uh, so yeah, it, it's basically just, uh, you know, it's chaos essentially, isn't it really? I mean, the, it, there are there are many different schools of thought on testing, but you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's not in favour of standardising things uh, and you know administering the same tests across different pupils and then having a standardised way of assigning marks to the answers they give and so on. Uh, and this is the opposite of that. Okay, and final question because we are, our time is nearly up. Um, after this fascinating paper that that, that you've written with John Durham, Sam, uh, what can we conclude about the relationship between eleven plus or transfer tests? and inequality. Can you, can you sum it up, do you think? Yeah, so there's a couple of interesting uh, papers on this, which I'll just talk about very briefly. Uh, one is by Guyon, Morin and McNally, which actually, I'm sure you're aware of this uh, paper, Noel, but they study uh, a reform in 1989, which increased the number and proportion of pupils um, who got into grammar schools, just by increasing the number of places. Uh, and their findings show that there was an overall increase in attainment on average, uh, but also suggestive findings that for those pupils who remained in the non-grammar schools, um, there seemed to be a negative uh, effect on, on, on their attainment. So essentially a widening of, you know, the distribution of attainment, i.e. an increase in inequality. And there's a kind of, um, you know, a, a related paper uh, very recently released by Burgess, Dixon and Macmillan in England, looking at the relationship between, uh, you know, school areas with selection and school areas without selection in England and subsequent inequalities in earnings in the labour markets. So, you know, income inequality. Uh, and of course, the problems with sort of pinning that down a legion, but they do a very good job. Uh, and they find that about one fifth of earnings inequality can be explained by difference in the selectivity across different local schooling systems in England. So it seems that, uh, you know, both in terms of education outcomes and earnings outcomes, selection at age 11 appears to increase inequality. Okay, Sam, we're gonna have to finish there. I'm, I'm afraid uh, we could talk much longer about this really fascinating yeah. paper and this fascinating subject. And it, uh, as I said earlier, this is such a, uh, a current issue for us uh, in Northern Ireland at the moment. But my thanks to you, Sam, for, for joining me for this podcast. And my thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Uh, for more information and updates on the work of CREW, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter. Thanks very much. You can read more about Dr. Sam Sims' work at his website, samsims.education. Today's podcast was produced by me, Jonathan Harris, and edited by Graham Watson. Until next time.